Hello Brooklyn, how you doing? You where you going? We cannot come to. And if I can, I'ma be your man. You can be my lady and have my baby and drive my car. You got me crazy. Whatever you going, baby, don't just take me. I'm so taken. Hello, Nets fans. How you doing? Russell and Fro is back sooner than expected. I bet you can guess why. Russell here and Fro there. We don't have a lot of news to talk about. We have an in-depth discussion on one news item in particular. It doesn't really need to be announced, but we're going to go and explore all angles of the unceremonious Kenny Atkinson ousting in Brooklyn, but I think we need to break a little bit of the tension here, some of that tension that's been reported to be in the Nets locker room and outside the Nets locker room by asking our friend and colleague on the Russell and Pro podcast, Carl Jackson. How you doing? Brett? I don't know how I'm doing, man. uh, It's... uh... Real end of an era situation over here. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I was a little bit at a loss for words on Saturday when this news came out. Um, I've definitely gotten a little bit more perspective from listening to to a few different things and reading a few different things. Um, pretty wild and interesting situation, though, and definitely the kind of thing that shakes me to the core of my fandom and and basically causes me to reassess everything that I felt like I knew about this franchise, where they were headed this off season, sort of, 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 uh, you know, what I thought they were going to do and any kind of like little spreadsheet doodling I'd done at work around, you know, ways that the nets could build up their salary cap through trades and stuff like that is pretty much out the window because, uh, this is a pretty seismic event, probably the biggest event in the history of the Brooklyn portion of the, or, or in the Brooklyn portion of the nets history, uh, aside from the Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett trade. I would agree with that. It doesn't seem like anybody in the fan base expected this. Sifting through various podcasts, news articles, tweets, comments, post-game interviews, it does seem like there were a lot of media members that that were aware that something like this might happen. I don't think they expected it to happen so soon. So that was the surprise to some of the folks in the NBA's inner media circle. Uh, and I think it, it's very, I think it's very rare that something like this happens in the NBA that completely surprises everybody, even the media. And when we go through the chronological order of events here, I, I think some of the things that we're going to point out show how surprising this was to some of the people that are known to have their finger on the pulse of the league, even if it's the inner workings of the Nets' first-time head coach. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to go through some of this. Do you want me to read off our, our sequence of events or are there any uh, – any other parting words you would like to share with our guests before I go through this uh, long, confusing web of reports? No, I mean let's let's just let's just hop right in. I guess the one thing I would say is uh, I was I was frankly almost more floored by how many people um, within the media were like, "Oh yeah, everybody kind of knew that was coming," um, and I think it's a little bit of a testament to the way that the Nets front office kind of keeps things close to the best. Uh, because it didn't, you know, n- normally I think when, when a coach is about to go, there's a little bit of the, there's, you know, the canary that sent down the coal mine in the forms of a, a story sort of detailing players grumbles and things like that. And we really didn't see anything like that, but why don't you just take us through kind of the objective history of the past few days for the Nets and Kenny Atkinson. I will. And it, it seemed to me like the media members were expecting this to happen after the season. And the surprise was not that it was going to happen. It was just that it happened with 20 games left in the season in the midst of the Nets making a playoff run that's more of a result of the Eastern Conference sucking than the Nets, but that's not something that we're here to talk about today. So, yeah, which, P.S., the Nets have played, I think, rather... Uh, they've been rather mediocre over the past five or six games, and they've only watched their playoff odds increase from about 85% all the way up to 95 or 99.5, depending on whether you're looking at uh, 538 or basketball reference. Bertons Temple, your 2020 Eastern Conference. 
<laughs> oh man. So we'll start with the 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 first the first event to drop here, which I think is very indicative of how this caught some media members by surprise. Nets Daily's own Anthony Puccio, aka Pooch, reported on Saturday morning that Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson decided to mutually part ways, resulting in Atkinson being let go from the team. Now, this is notable because Pooch beat Woj to the punch, as you pointed out before we started recording. That never happens, and to have somebody like him beat Adrian Wojnarowski, that was pretty awesome, so shout out to Pooch on that. It didn't. It's maybe the first time it's happened on like a breaking news item like this. But he was the first guy, I think, to float the uh, Nets are pretty confident that they're getting a big name free agent uh, last summer. So par for the course with our with our guy Pooch. Fair hashtag hire Pooch. Uh, next, this was followed up by uh, incredibly revealing Sean Marks press conference and some players not very revealing at all. He was able to avoid giving away pretty much any other information on this. It was artful and a little, a little bit creepy, almost uh, American psycho asked that he was able to sit up there so calmly and talk for about 10 minutes. And we came away with it knowing what seemingly less than we did before the press conference. This is followed by a, a series of reports and tweets, New York post, Stefan Bondi reporting that this decision did not come from Sean Marks. And in fact, Nets new majority owner Joseph Size spoke directly with players himself and influenced things behind the scenes, leading to Marks and Atkinson having their back and forth conversation about his role with the team and whether or not he had quote unquote lost the players. Uh, Yahoo's Vincent Goodwill is the one that reported in an article that Kenny Atkinson's relationship with Kyrie Irving had soured over the course of the season. And that was the main, if not one of the main drivers behind this eventual firing. Uh, the athletics, Sham Sharania, not to be uh, outshined by Pooch and Woj, outlined the entire series of events starting with last Tuesday's comeback win over the Celtics that led up to this. So there was a fiery halftime speech during that game where Kenny Atkinson lit into his players and then sat uh, a variety of notable players down the stretch, including Spencer Dinwiddie, while Karis LeVert led one of the best comebacks in regular season Nets history. Then that was uh, preceded by... An airing of grievances between coach and team after the Grizzlies blowout loss, which was pretty much unfathomable to watch us lose that badly to a barely hanging on Western Conference playoff team in the Grizzlies. Uh, so, so that happened, and some of the things the outline were pretty interested in saying. Kenny left that meeting dejected. Players spoke to each other about not playing to their potential and not leading the team like they should, and then came after Kenny when he called out certain players saying, hey, we don't know what our roles are. They're vaguely defined, and it would be really nice to know what I'm supposed to be doing with this team on a night-to-night basis versus it being more inconsistent. Uh, and then the decision was made by, supposedly, Sean Marks on Friday night, whether it was during the game, against the Spurs, after the game, before the game. I'm, I'm, we're getting conflicting reporting on that. But Kenny, at some point on Friday night, knew that he was going to be let go, and the news came out on Saturday. And then a, co- a couple other interesting tidbits. Zach Lowe and Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN reported that this was one of the, as you said, worst-kept secrets in the league's inner circles. And among the many tensions between team, GM, and coach, DeAndre Jordan coming off of the bench and Jared Allen starting was one of the biggest reasons that this came to a head amongst the players, which we both found very interesting. And then speaking of DeAndre Jordan, he had some very, what I thought were revealing quotes in a few press conference appearances since the media has been having a feeding frenzy after this news was out there because the league is uh, in a bit of a boring time right now. Uh, A couple quotes, I'll read them. He mentioned the guys who have been here love Kenny when he was talking about Kenny Atkinson, which I thought was very revealing about how the guys who hadn't been here feel about Kenny Atkinson. And then a longer quote, yeah, I'm close to Kyrie, but Wilson is a new player. Garrett Temple is a new player. We're all new players. So if you're going to say new players, put it on all eight of the new players. Talking about the 
Kyrie and KD two superstar theory that they're being blamed for leading the charge against Kenny Atkinson. So this is a, a very long convoluted sequence of events that has allowed us to try to piece together what happened here, true or not. To, to have to say what is what is really fact and what is fiction, but we're uh, we're about to walk you through that. Carl, did I miss anything? Nope, I think you got uh, pretty much all the grisly details. We'll, we'll add a, a props to uh, Alex Schiffler uh, from The Athletic on the reporting on the Shams piece as well. Um, but uh, no, I think that pretty much pretty much sums it up. So, um, you know, I, I think a clearer picture of what went down than we had Saturday, but still plenty of kind of behind-the-scenes narrative kind of fill-in kind of stuff, uh, particularly because so much of the detail that we do have comes from the Shams piece, and it is very clearly, I think, from a, a specific uh, point of view. I don't know exactly whose, but but certainly seems like it's from a fairly specific point of view. So um, what, what I thought, Brett, you know, as I've been kind of trying to piece this together, um, I have been able to kind of go in a lot of different directions with, you know, how I feel about it, what I think about it. Um, and, and, and I think that that's been fairly true for what I've read as well. I think for as sort of seismic an event as this is, and for as um, surprising as it, it and, and mind blowing as it felt as a fan, uh, it does seem like the people who kind of know stuff were kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, we knew that was going to happen. And, you know, maybe it's a big deal. Maybe it's not, but it, it toss a little water on the situation for me at least um i think given that there's going to be probably i'm I'm guessing speculating here uh, a decent amount of uh, frustration expelled on this podcast given that this is a safe space we're here to let it out why don't we why don't we make an effort to start with the positive why don't you give me and i will give you uh your most sort of positive charitable read on the situation um as a nets fan give me give me like the homer take the take that's like this is all going to be okay because here because here's here's what i see happening i i I think the the most positive take here is Kyrie and kd came to brooklyn with nothing but winning a championship on their mind Sean Marks came to Brooklyn with nothing but winning a championship on his mind. Joseph Tsai did not come to Brooklyn, but he is uh, closely watching Brooklyn (laughs) from afar, let's say, with nothing but a championship on his mind. They collectively together determined that if we're going to do this, we have a very small window given our ages, our contract length, what we expect to happen with the salary cap. And we've determined that Kenny Atkinson does not give us the highest percentage chance of winning a championship based on what we know, Kyrie Irving being a champion, Kevin Durant being a champion, Sean Marks being part of an organization that has won multiple championships and said, hey, instead of drawing this thing out and taking away one of the years that may be the Nets only two-year window in or best two-year window to win a championship ever, we're going to make this move now and give us the best chance to find a great coaching candidate before the coaching candidate pool dries up and take full advantage of this two-year window versus giving Kenny Atkinson the probability or possibility of wasting a quarter of next season, half of next season, all of next season, when we're very, very certain that he's not going to be the right guy to lead us there. And this is going to give us, as Nets fans, our best shot to finally get to the promised land and hang a banner in the Raptors that doesn't belong to the ABA. Or, or Jay-Z. I think there's a there's a Jay-Z banner up there too, right? Um, okay, so I, I agree with you. I agree with you there. I mean, I, I think um, every positive take that I have heard, every sort of positive uh, attempt at, you know, trying to contextualize this, it starts with the idea that, you know, firing a coach for a team with championship aspirations is is not only sort of not that big of a deal, but um, 
but but something that's often a necessary part of the process. And I think to your point, exactly like the window is shorter here. If you're going to do it, you're better off doing it now. Don't wait until the off season. Don't, you know, don't go into the off season with a lame duck, like not sure sort of, you know, coaching vacancy that you're not sure when you're going to fill, like, you know, get out in front of it and, and make the move. And, and as weird as it sort of is, like really, really kind of the other positive that I took away was like, I was at first so floored by the fact that this, happen when it did and i was like why would you ever do it right now you're heading into the playoffs you're you know um there's just no there's just no benefit no upside but but really as i kind of thought about that a little bit more really the negatives to doing it right now are all sort of narrative based and all sort of playing the media base and i and i do feel like sean marks both with just sort of the way he keeps things close to the vest has shown a little bit of a to be to be like a little bit agnostic to the sort of media narrative it's just not something he, he necessarily cares about and we can talk about whether or not that's a good or a bad thing but um it makes a little bit more sense i think in that context because it's like yeah okay maybe maybe you open up a bad story maybe you open up but also the news cycle will wash itself out it'll be gone by the time it's it's free agent time i i don't think the timing of it is really that much of a problem to be perfectly honest with you especially because i think it can work well for both the nets and for kenny so I'm not, I'm not as concerned about the timing. Um, I think the other, the other things that I would want to know in my sort of most positive take are, you know, it sounds like there were some basketball philosophy sort of differences between Kenny and the rest of the team. Um, I would like to know that sort of some of the positives that I take from Kenny's approach um, are not things that the rest of the team objected to in terms of kind of the type of shot distribution. I know a lot has been made about kind of Kevin Durant railing against anti mid range. Um, and Kenny being, you know, like there was a Spencer Dinwiddie quote earlier in the season, I think when he hit the game winner against Indiana, where he was like, Oh, Kenny gets mad in the mid range. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I think that that's kind of a, an easy thing to glom onto. Um, you know, I think you and I both agree that that's just sort of the fundamentals of a good offense is, is, um, you know, making sure that you're optimizing your shot profile a little bit to, to get the most points out of things. So I'm hoping that that's not a, you know, we're, we're not going to go sign DeMar DeRozan and turn into last year's Spurs where we're just shooting from, from 15 feet um, all next season. I think the other thing that is very important to me is that, sh- that uh, Sean Marks is still empowered as the general manager. So I think there are multiple scenarios in which he is, in which, you know, this kind of came to Marks and he was given the opportunity to, make this decision and, you know, maybe had a little bit of leeway in terms of what the timing was going to be. But I think it's really important that, um, that he's still empowered as a general manager. I think going into the off season with him as a lame duck worries me quite a bit because I think that gets you back to, to square one. So I, I think as long as, you know, he's still in place, I think there are, um, definite, definite positives that can come out of this. It's tough for me to believe that Sean Marks is going into the offseason as a lame duck GM because who the heck do you replace him with at this point? I, I I just don't know where we go where we go from here. And it, he's he has barely made a misstep along the way. And now again, you said the Nets are very very good about hiding their information, but it, it, that that would be if we're talking about worst case scenarios if he is going to the offseason as a, a lame duck candidate that would be an indictment of joseph's a, a very damning indictment of joseph Sai. well i think i think it gets into kind of infringing on that window in a way that that you talked about right like i think if that's the most important thing organizationally i think that's um you know that's important um okay so so we've done so we've done our sort of most positive appraisal of this. Let's get a little bit dark here, Brett. Talk to me about your fears. Talk to me about your concerns. What's uh what's the darkest read on this? All around me are familiar faces. Uh there are a lot of dark takes here. And I tried to <laughs> I tried to compile them into into one sort of super mutant darkest timeline take that i that, that i'm reading on this one and i i think this is it which is, which is a little far-fetched because i i don't necessarily think of these players this way but the darkest timeline in my situation is that kyrie kd deandre jordan and friends and super friends 
did not come to Brooklyn to win. They came to Brooklyn to sunset their careers as comfortably as possible in a living situation that they wanted to be in. And uh, Kenny Atkinson got in the way of that with his got to play a hundred miles per hour all the time mentality. And this was never really about winning or even really about basketball, those two stars coming here, but it was more about uh, accentuating the personal lives of two overprivileged egomaniacal NBA superstars that were more intrigued by living in the largest media market in the world and focusing on their out of basketball business ventures and figuring out what to do in life after basketball, given that they both have already won an NBA championship and theoretically have nothing else to prove. And in the meantime, because they don't view basketball as the number one thing anymore, what happens to the Nets toying with the firing of a coach, toying with a team's draft cash and a team's asset cash does not matter to them because that's not necessarily what they're focused on. And the Nets go into a even worse Billy King-esque situation where they're now at the mercy of these two stars because they've never had stars before. And the Nets are under tremendous pressure to prove that they can cater to superstars in the player empowerment era and get forced into some very, very short-term poor decisions. Yeah, I think um, I think mine is, is a is a variation on that. Um, so so basically, I think the idea is like I, I completely agree. I, I guess the way that I would phrase it, maybe uh, just to kind of sum it up, is you know I I wouldn't say that KD, Kyrie, and DeAndre Jordan don't want to win or don't care as much about winning. I think maybe what it is is that they're at a point in their career where they want to win their way. And they want to win their way more than they want to win in general. And so I think that means they want a certain degree of control over the team that's going to be on the floor and how that's going to work. And I think where that gets concerning to me is that I don't think that they've proven thus far to be particularly adept at, um, you know, finding uh, the types of players they're going to need to, to win. And because I think that, you know, you, you look at like, like, I feel like it's kind of like the thing that, that LeBron does all the time. Um, you know, like where, you know, he's, he, he like, I, I, I joked about, um, I think last year when we were doing this, that like LeBron is sort of the NBA equivalent of like the 1980s, like corporate Raider archetype, like, like the dude from pretty woman where like, he's just going to come in, strip, you know, strip a company of all of its assets, um, you know, pay himself a huge salary, let the company go bankrupt and then flip it. Um, I think that that's a little bit what LeBron does to franchises. If you look at sort of where he left the heat when he left and where he left the Cavs when he left. But, but part of that is that number one, LeBron plays the, the most premium value position in the league, which is that, you know, he is a two way wing who can score defend and then also can get players involved as a point guard. Kyrie Irving doesn't do that from the point guard spot. Kevin Durant, I think, uh, does or did, um, although I think there's serious questions about whether or not he would be able to exist as a winger if he's sort of relegated to being a four going forward. So, so I think that, that that's an interesting question sort of for my dark timeline scenario. But ultimately, I think it's just that these guys want to these guys want to win their way. And I think like a perfect example of that, not to get too caught up in it, even though it was the thing that is cited the most, I think just because it's the most straightforward example is like the whole DeAndre Jordan starting over Jared Allen thing, because, you know, I think every single person that I have heard talk about this or, or read about this has noted that Jared Allen is a better player than DeAndre Jordan. I know that DeAndre Jordan has been better than I expected personally. And I think there have been games down the stretch where Allen struggles a little bit where um, DeAndre Jordan has, you know, arguably been a better player than him. But I don't think there's any question that Jared Allen is a better player. I think if you just watch, just watch DeAndre Jordan try to finish a lob, um, watch him not be able to jump and tell me that he's a better player than Jared Allen. It's ridiculous. And I think, you know, for people uh, on Nets Twitter that like think that this firing is justified because, you know, the, the Jared Allen hate there uh, really kind of pisses me off. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a little bit worked up here, but, um, <laughs> but, but, I, but I think that like, I think that that's an example though, where kind of putting their guy first 
or putting, frankly, what they think is more important from a basketball standpoint uh, is a little bit detrimental to kind of what I think is actually working and and has been shown to be working. What you just reminded me of is an article that was written a long time ago that I can't remember who wrote it, but it was talking about LeBron spending years trying to recreate the atmosphere of his high school basketball team, which there's a documentary about it. It was him and four of his best friends and the starting lineup. And that is what he always wanted to surround himself with in the NBA and find a way to balance doing that, but also winning a championship. And that's one of the reasons why it took him so long to get to the promised land and it took him moving, uh, seeing some humiliation in Cleveland, not getting over the hump and moving to an organization like Miami and letting Pat Riley build the team a little bit without as much of his input until he won the champion, won those championships and then figured, uh, decided, hey, I'm going to do things on my terms and leading to Tristan Thompson getting a $100 million contract and a lot of other uh, bizarre and uh, not so great things for Cleveland happening when he went back there. And I think that also, that that really ties into that darkest timeline and what you were just laying out, which is we could, we could really, really envision a world where we have somebody that's akin to Tristan Thompson being signed to a contract like that, it not working out because Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, especially an injured injury recovery, Kevin Durant are not LeBron James. And then that's not winning a championship and then being the Cleveland Cavaliers of 2019, 2020 come two or three years from now. And I really like this, this is maybe cart before the horse and maybe I'm showing my hand here, but I legitimately think that Sean Marks is special. Um, and I I thought that the sort of Marks-Atkinson regime uh, was special as well. And, and I understand and I will buy, I, I can get on board with buying the idea that this was something that was going to need to happen one way or another. And if and if you buy that, then I'll buy that it's better off to happen now than, than you know, 12 games in the next season or something like that. Especially if the players were unhappy. But the opportunity, exactly, exactly. But the opportunity cost then of doing this when Sean Marks is your GM, as opposed to like, you know, as detrimental as the uh, Garnett Pierce trade was, like Billy King was never going to be the savior of this franchise. Like Billy King is, you know, good at, you know, bringing in big names and that kind of stuff. But like, you know, going all in, busting your hand and then having to fire Billy King, I don't think is really that big of a deal, to be perfectly honest with you. And the fact that they've committed to this rebuild with Sean Marks, the fact that they've, you know, were able to pry him away from San Antonio because of the opportunity that they gave him, I feel like to put him in uh, the situation that this, the Cavs are in, you know, post LeBron, I, you know, I think would be a really, would be, uh, you know, a real opportunity cost that, that would really, you know, be a bummer. Well, Danny LaRue always always says something which which I love, which is ownership is the biggest competitive in any sport. And if we're now in a place where we have a new owner and he is going to be meddling in the team and it turns out that he does not know what he's doing when it comes to basketball, which is very, very likely because he's never owned an NBA team before and was a big college basketball and NBA NBA fan before doing that, but that has nothing to do with the inner workings operationally of an NBA franchise. We could be in major trouble, but if this is something that truly was a collective decision and Joseph Sy just happened to be somebody who also talked to players to verify what Sean Marks was saying because he also had a very high opinion of Kenny Atkinson and just wanted to make sure that things were true before the Nets made a big shakeup. I'm cool with that. But if this was something that was predicated from him, I don't want to say going behind Marx's back, but acting on his own accord and not acting as a team, that is incredibly worrisome. Yeah, I I completely agree. And, um, you know, I don't want to get into the whole culture conversation because it's been... I get so frustrated in, in the sense that I think people, what everybody talks about is culture is not what I understand organizational culture to mean because uh, organizational culture is something that should extend beyond the players that are in the locker room and beyond the coach because you need to be able to have those people leave uh, and sustain. That's the point of an organizational culture in general. Um, But I do think that if Sean Marks is responsible for the culture that existed in Brooklyn, 
uh, and Josai is going to come in and, and make different decisions, then then that is completely undermined and gone. I mean, the the sort of good vibes, team chemistry, um, you know, whole is greater than the sum of the parts thing that I think at most people refer to when they say culture from last season is obviously gone. Um, and that was gone the second that, that Kyrie and Katie signed um, and, and they got rid of D'Angelo Russell, I think. There's just no... Yeah, they could have they could have had the most happy kumbaya Ubuntu season this season, um, and that still would have been dead from from last year. I, but but that to me was never what the culture was about. The culture was about you know being a player first organization and being a place where um, you know transparency and communication kind of were at the forefront of everything they did. Which is why it's a little bit interesting to me that the Shams report was kind of bagging on. Uh, Atkinson's ability to communicate with his players. So I guess kind of on that note, why don't we dig into sort of what you think happened based on everything that you've read and everything that you've heard um, and your feel for, for watching this team. What, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, that ties into a lot of what you were just saying when you were mentioning that the Nets last year were a some uh, a, a team that was greater than the sum of their parts because of the way Kenny Atkinson coached and because of the way the players bought into how he coached. That is a very, very specific way to coach a team. And I think you have to have the right factors in that pot to pull it off. And you, so for example, you need to have players that were cast aside by the league, throw out Joe Harris, throw out Spencer Dinwiddie, throw out the way Karis LeVert dropped in the draft, throw out the way Jared Allen dropped in the draft because of concerns of whether or not he cared about basketball. And then you have to have other players that have something to prove. So guys like Damari Carroll, who signed that big contract, was in Toronto, and fans hated him because he was playing his way back from injury and was never quite right. Or somebody like Jared Dudley, still trying to make a good name for himself in the league after the disappointing stint with the Clippers when he had that great run with the Suns. And it was just all this... It it was a perfect storm of players that were willing to buy into a play 100 miles per hour at all times, pass the ball around, share it. Don't worry about your own stats. This season is all about winning. And none of you really have a leg to stand on because none of you, A, are superstars, uh, and B, have established yourself enough in the league to have any sort of control over how this team should be run and how this offense should be run. And... I do think that that is on Kenny for not necessarily pivoting coming into this year, but I also think that there was some sort of pressure put on Kenny Atkinson. I think there was, I think there was even a quote that I read, which I, I can't remember where it's from now, but it was talking about Kenny saying before the season very openly that, Hey, uh, this might not be, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. This is a big test for me. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm excited to see it through. So he knew that it was going to be a tough struggle for him. And maybe he knew mentally that he coaches one way. It was going to be a struggle for him because he was going to try to coach this completely different situation one way. And it ended up blowing in his face because in order to survive this season and on a team with proven veterans, veterans that have won championships, veterans that are bigger than the team, bigger than the coach, bigger than the franchise, you have to adjust your style. And he either wasn't able or wasn't willing to do that. And all the reports came through about him wanting to go out and do things his way, which is almost like a, a training day King Kong ain't got shit on me moment for Kenny Atkinson, which is not the right way to run a team where it should be, Hey, we have superstars. We have veteran players that have done it. Everybody should have input and it should be about catering to the folks on the team, building enough of a relationship with them. So they take my input at some point. And instead it was about, Hey, we have a great culture. We have a great system. You guys should fit into it. And I'm the coach. You're going to do what I say. That does not uh, tend to fly with vets so well and he took a shot at doing things his way i uh, always felt like his back was a little bit against the wall and it ended up backfiring on him and maybe he really did think in the back of his mind that he wasn't going to be here next season so he didn't really care about adapting but i think that the truth is somewhere in there out and also Sai and mark seeing the urgency of hey we might have two years at this thing so if there's any sign of trouble with Kenny or with any of the other factors that we've put in place, we're going to have to pull the plug because this might be our only shot. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think when you look at last year's team and, and, and the years before, I mean, I think they've, and, and this is where some of the communication stuff, I think, was surprising to me because I think they have, the Nets have, since he took over, always had, I think, a very clear identity of the way that they wanted to play basketball, um, the, the types of shots they wanted to take. They didn't necessarily have the players to make those shots, but they knew kind of what the, what they wanted to do, how they wanted to play defense, um, and kind of how, you know, how they wanted to manage their rotations. And it was always about, you know, playing with relatively interchangeable pieces across the lineup, playing a, a little bit of a deeper uh, set of guys for uh, fewer minutes kind of across the board. Um, and you know, like, like just different sort of stylistic things, like always playing at least four out with a, generally with a rim rolling center, although they did, they did have Brooke Lopez that, um, one year, uh, really a perimeter oriented kind of driving kick, uh, system, um, from a, you know, from a basket, from a, you know, offensive perspective, um, a defense that is really anchored around a shot blocker, um, whether that manifests itself in actual zones or not. Um, so, you know, I do think he's always kind of had that pretty clear idea of, of what he wanted to do. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to me some of the challenges with, you know, roles and stuff like that. But I do think that, you know, maybe part of it is, you know, it's always required a ton of buy-in from guys. And, and you look at sort of the veterans that the Nets have picked up over the course of the past few seasons, there's always been kind of the type of you know, quote unquote, like high character guys or guys that are coachable guys that are willing to buy in. I think that was the case with Jared Dudley. There are certain cases where they haven't felt like they had those types of opportunities. So like, you know, Kenneth Freed, I think was an example of somebody that we kind of heard whispers around the margins, like, eh, he didn't really buy into the net system and he consequently didn't play. And then, you know, when he went to the Rockets, he was actually pretty effective. So it wasn't just purely a, you know, you don't have the skills to succeed here uh, type of, uh, of scenario. It seemed like, you know, maybe he, he didn't buy in and Kenny was able to select him out. Um, when they, when they uh, salary dumped Dwight Howard, they made no attempt at sort of uh, reclamating him, um, which, you know, I think certainly was probably the right move. They definitely took a chance on guys like Anthony Bennett and, and Julie Okafor um, and, you know, had some success there, but it was always sort of dudes that were like legitimately, on their way out and not guys that had had a ton of success in the league before. So, you know, I think some of it is like, you don't have the luxury of only coaching guys that buy in anymore. So, so I think that that's part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a little bit curious about, I guess the basketball side of it, like the, like the basketball system side of it. Do you see sort of any obvious clashes with um, the folks on this roster that, that you feel like are notable aside from Deandre Jordan's playing time? You know, not not really. I just think the way that there's there's nothing too glaring in, in my opinion. I think the the playing one way, forcing the ball to uh, whoever's open, that's not necessarily going to be the best fit for somebody like uh, Katie and Kyrie, where the best positions are always going to end up with the ball in their hands unless it's a wide open dunk or three from the rest of our players. But I, I didn't have too many concerns about Kenny adjusting to that when they were both with the team. I think it's more just his demeanor, the work ethic that he has, the fire that he coaches with fits very well when the team is made up of rookies and an island of NBA misfit toys. And when it's anything beyond that, the it's not necessarily the system. It's the way that he communicates with players and uh, tries to push people to fit into that system. That was the glaring hole, in my opinion. It wasn't necessarily that these guys were like, oh, man, this system of basketball doesn't work for us. It was the way that Kenny is trying to get us to do things and being inconsistent with our minutes and almost playing team czar versus team coach or team supporter. It's almost like the difference between like the, the manager at work who's the supportive manager is there to be like, Hey, what do you need? What can I help with? What are some of the issues going on versus the guy that's like, Hey, this is how we do things here. This is how I'm going to track you every week. And if you're not doing those things, we're going to talk about how to get you there. And you can do that with younger players and guys that are trying to fight to stay in the league. And you can't really do that with guys that have better credentials than you have, whether they are earning their minutes that season 
or not. And Kenny was so focused on the minutiae, the short term, hey, you didn't box out or hey, you didn't do this or I'm sitting you in the fourth quarter. So I think somebody even brought up the example of D'Angelo Russell was lighting up the Celtics one night last season and he missed a box out and Kenny decided to bench him for seven minutes in the fourth quarter where it's like you got to see the forest through the trees at some point. And when you're trying to win a championship, it's more about managing egos and the way that you communicate things versus how hard you work and how much you focus on those details and communicate those details in game. Yeah, I think it's a little bit, I mean, it brings to mind a couple of things for me, right? Like one is, I think um, there's a difference between sort of being a, a coach and a manager to a certain extent. And I think different teams have needed sort of different things that, you know, d- different basketball teams need different things at different points. You know, I think you, you look at like Phil Jackson as somebody who I think is like, a manager, right? He's somebody that works with guys. He, he will help them, but, but, you know, he's working with guys that have, you know, he's been successful working with guys that are coming from a relatively established position, whether it was on the Bulls or on the Lakers. Um, not so much like building guys up. I think Kenny's much more of a, a coach out of like the, almost like the college mindset. And, and, you know, when you read, there's an article about him, um, the one where he like, you know, got into basketball by running into some dude at a hot dog stand and, you know, ended up out in Europe. Like, you know, I think all of his success stories were really about finding somebody, figuring out a way to sort of, you know, make that player better and, and get them to a different point. And so I think sometimes the forest through the trees thing, I think is a little bit of that, right. Which is, you know, are you prioritizing like that player's long-term development or are you prioritizing, you know, getting the most wins in a given season. And I think for, for most of his tenure, I think rightfully so, uh, you know, he was always sort of asked to prioritize long-term stuff. And I think, you know, sometimes that came at some, you know, in-game, uh, de- you know, t- to the detriment of some some of his in-game abilities, like whether it was that 10-game losing streak last season where it didn't seem like the Nets could inbound the ball in the fourth quarter or this year's woes kind of uh, in the second half and, and blowing, you know, multiple 10-point leads, blowing more 10-point leads than anybody else in the league, um, you know, struggling uh, as a fourth-quarter team. Like the difference between their net rating in the first half and second half is pretty pretty huge and, and really up there with teams that um, – you know, most of the other teams that have that are, are very good and they have that because they are blowing teams out by so much. So it's a little bit of a struggle to, to find that drop off. Um, but, you know, so, so he, he, he does strike me as a little bit more as like a development type guy. I guess I'm, it's a little bit challenging. You know, you, you mentioned, did he have the opportunity to kind of adapt or change his ways? to fit around superstars. And I feel like part of the challenge for this for me in terms of just being fair to him is like, did he really have the opportunity to like, do do you feel like if, if Kyrie had played this year, you know, he, he would have, I mean, is there a world in which Kyrie would have played this year and therefore Kenny would have, had more of an opportunity to, to stick around or do you think that that would have just accelerated things because they would be sort of at each other's throat more? Right. And it, I think it's what you attribute Kyrie's sour mood to or Kyrie souring on Atkinson to because you could easily see that happening because Kyrie gets injured, sits out a few games, the whole Celtics fans going nuts on social media, chanting, where is Kyrie, chanting things about him when he's sitting in that game, gets in his head, he makes that weird Instagram post and he starts spiraling mentally. I mean, if, if you're Kyrie Irving and you're in one of your states, you could see yourself you could see him souring on Kenny no matter what happened. Whereas if he's playing basketball, theoretically, he's a little bit happier than if he's just sitting at home listening to the the media cycle of negativity around him because his name gets a ton of clicks, especially when it's associated with him bringing down a franchise or screwing over the Celtics or doing the same thing where he's eating the next organization from the inside out. That... I think that if he had been playing, it it lowers the possibility that he has enough time to think and sour on Kenny Atkinson versus going to a mental spiral because he's sitting at home and rehabbing and trying to get opinions from 12 different doctors on his shoulder and posting on Instagram about eyes. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think it's also just like uh, there's more of an opportunity for them to see eye to eye. Whereas now, you know, he's kind of getting, you know, he has his own feelings based on a, a pretty limited uh, sample of the two of them working together. And then he's got sort of what he's hearing trickling out from from his buddies right. on the team, yeah. which which are all generally, I think, you know, guys that have been around the league for a while, but um, haven't been within that organization. And, and And I could also see, you know, the other thing I think that maybe maybe doesn't get mentioned is like, this is, this is maybe the first time in this tenure where they've brought back sort of enough of a core that it could create the kind of rift of like the in group and the out group in terms of, um, you know, like, like, like I could see that creating a difficult situation for players like a Deandre Jordan, who feels like he's an established veteran in this league. Um, and, and to be clear, like by all accounts, it doesn't seem like even though, DeAndre's playing time kind of gets cited a lot. It doesn't really seem like he's necessarily the one that's driving it. It seems like he and Jared Allen have a pretty good relationship, et cetera, et cetera. It's more like that's used as evidence of kind of why people, why, why different players are not on the same page with Kenny. But what I was going to say was, you know, you, you could see him coming in kind of like he, you know, he's the established veteran in this league and, you know, Jared Allen's like the coach's pet that's getting to play. Um, and, and, you know, kind of creates a little bit of that animosity where those guys never really feel like they get to, to, you know, come out. And, and I feel like the same thing kind of you're hearing about guys really not understanding their roles. Like, I don't know if that's a, a function of um, having guys that have been a core member of this team have such established roles, or if that's a function of the fact that in that sort of positionless system, it's a little bit kind of kludgy for lack of a better term in terms of who's doing what particularly at the forward positions everything that's not point guard or center um but i guess like do you do you have thoughts on on uh, i guess what this means for the makeup of this team going forward like how does this impact the offseason in your view do you think that we're more likely to see uh, more roster turnover, um, not as a result of this, but is this like a, a harbinger of, of that to come, or do you feel uh, differently about that? Well, one thing is clear. These players did not come to Brooklyn to foster the development of younger stars and sacrifice some of their own minutes or their own egos to watch some of these guys become elevated and feel supported. And I think that was very, very clear when they were going through some of the tensions, particularly with DeAndre Jordan, even if he wasn't the one that was voicing those and leading the charge in the locker room. And I do think it assigns or paints this upcoming offseason with a lot more urgency than I would have originally expected. In fact, when Sean Marks came out and talked about the window that the Nets had and talked about it as a two-year process, I thought that was him subtly saying, hey, listen, I've heard a lot of talk from Nets fans about having to make a move, about how we don't have the right pieces, about how the team's not ready, about how we need to stretch for, about where the heck is Aaron Gordon? We need to empty the chest for Bradley Peel. This is going to be a process, and we might not view next year as the same opportunity that Nets fans do, and that's more of an assessment year for us to figure out where Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are coming back from their injuries, what type of pieces fit around them in the system that we want to play and then we're going to say okay we're going to shoot more of a sniper rifle rather than a shotgun instead of who's available we're just going to grab them we know who's going to take us to the championship or give us our best shot at winning the next season and we're going to go after those players i think now that this happened it shows that the nets are hoping to take two really 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 good shots at winning the championship and if they feel like the team isn't there going into the offseason they're going to do everything in their power to get the team there and it now paints the offseason in that light for me and if we get through this summer with both spencer dinwiddie and karis levert still on this team i will be floored based on this move that just happened how quickly it happened and the fact that it surprised a lot of people around the league in terms of the timing 
So I really do think it, it, it assigns a lot more urgency in my mind to how the Nets are thinking about this offseason and it drastically increases the chances that we're going to make multiple moves to set ourselves up to make a run next season versus assess and make a move as early as the trade deadline next year. So kind of two quick reactions to that. One is I agree with almost everything you said except for the names that you listed, uh, and here's why. Um, number one, I think, you know, I went back. So preparing for this, I went back and listened to uh, the Kevin Kevin Durant's interview in the uh, during the Memphis game that while we were recording the last pod. And the reason I did that was because I, I had thought that he had mentioned, like, positives about Kenny, and I was like, oh, masterful PR move by KD. Um you know, getting that out there to get ahead of the story. turns out he didn't mention Kenny Atkinson at all, uh, you know, by name. He, he said, we have good coaching. That's really the extent of it. So I, I wouldn't, I, I no longer read too much into that, particularly because I know he's super tight with Adam Harrington. And it seems like the Nets organization as a whole is somewhat high on the rest of the staff. I don't know how that, how the hell that works if, you know, <laughs> you keep some of Kenny Atkinson's staff there. Um, but I guess, you know, that, that could also be a, a scenario where it's Mark's staff more than it's Kenny's staff. Um, that, neither here nor there. Point is, um, in that interview, he listed a bunch of names as well. Um, and I think, you know, we also heard Kyrie Irving list a bunch of names earlier. We've heard multiple instances where players have listed guys that they think are going to be a part of this team going forward. And it's always included Karis LeVert and it's always included Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, the two names that are conspicuously always absent are Joe Harris and Jared Allen. And I, you know, I don't know. Again, I don't know how much to read into that, um, but it doesn't seem like, even if they're not suggesting that they get rid of them, it just doesn't seem like they seem to feel like they're part of the same group, whereas Torian Prince is part of that group. Torian Prince gets called out by by Kevin Durant. Uh, Garrett Temple gets called out by Kyrie. Uh, DeAndre Jordan certainly gets called out multiple times. You know, Karras gets called out. Spencer gets called out. Joe does not. Jared Allen does not. Um, and I wonder a little bit of like, is that, you know, A, does that contribute to the overall dynamic? And B, like, I think that, that you know, my money would be on at least Harris not being there next year because I think he's the easiest one to, to walk because he's just a free agent. Um, and I don't know what happens with, with Allen. But it also puts them in a position of, you know, do you return... Karis LeVert and do you return Spencer Dinwiddie? Because the other thing is, I, I feel like to a certain extent, maybe the fit issue is less of a problem now if they're not going to play Kenny's system. If it's going to be more about ball handling, more about pounding the ball into the ground and just getting as many guys who can make a run at the rim on the floor at a given time, maybe that's how they want to go about the offense. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying maybe that's how they view it. Um, oh, that's super interesting. So, so it's like maybe the move is about being able to maximize all the ball handlers that we have and recognizing that that is a, a rarity to have that many super skilled ball handlers who can also shoot it under favorable contracts so we don't have to go super deep into the luxury tax. And I guess that's fair because when you look at what Joe Harris and Jared Allen provide outside of reading the Kyrie and Kevin Durant tea leaves, you can replace 75% of Joe Harris at 50%, maybe even 25% of the cost. And if you're adding Kevin Durant to that team, it's it's definitely a net positive. And what is the most or what is considered the most replaceable position in the league right now? It's center. In fact, the Houston Rockets don't even have a center. Oh, wait, they do is Tyson Chandler and he doesn't play. It's, and you can pick up any center off of the scrap heap and he's probably going to be a decent role guy and play okay post defense. So if you want to look at replaceability in terms of who you're trading and players that can help other teams that other teams might want, those are the two guys that you would look at because it's probably going to come out a net positive in terms of what you get back. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I agree with you on Allen. Where I struggle with that, though, is I don't see how you're going to get better value than you have in Jared Allen on his, you know, with two years left on his rookie deal. 
uh, because it's not it's not just you know what does Jared Allen bring you? It's Jared Allen bring you for three million dollars, and then what does he bring you for five million dollars the the year after? Um, so so the opportunity to have a player on the upswing, like if you know if you're going to go out and replace him with Willie Cauley Stein, or you know, so, uh, well I guess it wouldn't be him. I, he was always who I was thinking of when I figured it was just a rim rolling situation. But like, you know. Do you want to go pay Serge Ibaka $18 million to to come in and, you know, stretch the floor on possessions when DeAndre Jordan's not there? Like, I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know that do Katie and Kyrie, that's what, that's what it really comes down to. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's, that's fair. I guess you just like, at some point you're just going to run out of money though. Right. Like, <laughs> be like, like at some point you're just not, I don't know, like, 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 the hope that I would have that Allen would remain a part of this team, even if he's coming off the bench is just that I don't really see if, if we assume that they don't have a personal problem with him, like as a player, I don't really see how you're going to do better on a better contract for a backup guy. Um, And I, and and I think the other, the other challenge is if you are going to keep, you know, the the advantage of getting rid of Spencer and and Karras is uh, you know, you, they have trade value, uh, which I don't know that Jared Allen has a ton of, and and Harris is going to walk without it. So it's it's interesting. It's an interesting conundrum. You know, I, I've always sort of thought the Achilles heel of the Nets, uh, pardon uh, the horrible wordplay, is the fact that this team, and, and this was true last season, like that this team is built around really, really good guards and uh, you know, dynamic kind of, or defensively at least from the center position. And you're in a league where wings are seemingly the most important players from a winning perspective and certainly uh, the most valuable players from an economic perspective. So uh, I think it'd be a lot easier to be sourcing, you know, point guards and bigs than it is to, to go find like, you know, valuable wings in the open market. Well, I think it's also what you package Jared Allen with because you need to have salary matches in the NBA to make this work. And his, his rookie controlled contract is not going to get the Nets a great player back. It, if anything, it's going to get the Nets a young player back, which isn't really going to help us. Or you have to find somebody to package him with. And that's when you replace him with a lower tier bottom of the mill center and hopefully whoever you trade him for package with other other player ends up being a net positive over Jared Allen and X salary matching player plus whoever we pick up off the scrap heap. But his contract is very favorable, I agree. And for the Nets that are going to be going into the luxury tax, having players on cost control is a pretty valuable asset to have, but as uh Darren Morey says when you have at least a 5% chance to win a championship, you got to empty that war chest of assets and really go for it. So who the heck knows what's going to happen. But I, I think that based on this move, Sean Marks is going to take that same sort of mentality and not really care about the future when it comes to draft picks and get a little bit weird with some of these trades. I agree with that. I'm all for getting weird. Um, I just... Yeah, I don't know. I um, I just wonder. I don't know. I, I, just from from trying to play, you know, spreadsheet roulette with pulling guys in and trade machine type stuff. Like, I just think you run out of, or you go so deep into the luxury tax so quick because of the money that you're you've committed to KD, Kyrie, and to a lesser extent DeAndre Jordan. So while it would make sense to get rid of Jared Allen, I just, you know, it depends. It depends on the value that you're getting in return. Um, but just from a value perspective, like I think he's an important asset that arguably has more value to the Nets than he does anybody else because of because of what he is on that contract. Fair. So last question I'm going to ask you um, before we before we call it a night, and I will close with one positive stat uh, before that. Do you? So we've talked about kind of the philosophical differences that have led to this. Do you agree with any of that? Do you have any? Do you share any of those concerns about Kenny and his and his system? I guess more about his his basketball system than um, his coaching style, because obviously we we don't get coached by him. Yeah. I, I really think the the one thing I disagreed with was his uh, 
was his coaching style, and that's why I do think it was deserved because it seemed like he was unwilling to change that. I don't really have any concerns with this system. If anything, I just have concerns with some of the X's and O's stuff when it comes to executing at the end of games. And, I mean, if we want to go to a lesser extent, one of the concerns is the way that the Nets math basketball tends to mask what could be potential glaring weaknesses come playoff time when other teams find unfavorable matchups and go at them over and over and over again. So there was some concern to me that the way that Kenny tried to get players to play and assigned his system was a great way to overproduce in the regular season in a even better way to fall short of expectations in the postseason because players were probably a little bit run down defenses are a little bit more keyed in and it's more about the talent level and the in-game adjustments than it is the system overall finding more efficient shots so i think those were my concerns with kenny's system and it's not that he couldn't have learned to adjust his coaching style in the playoffs but thinking about it that way it probably would have taken more than two years of going through the gauntlet of playing against the best teams in the east and hopefully the best team in the west and in that light i think it did i did probably hurt or lower our chances of playing for a championship yeah i think it's interesting i mean we've talked about the kind of um system masking the talent the true talent level of the team thing before I, I really struggle to to mark that as a negative in his column because i feel like what you're telling what, what you're saying is you know he's getting teams to outperform what their true talent level is and then that gets exposed in the playoffs and so that's maybe unpleasant um but i guess i would always just sort of flip it and be like well you know is it better if you have a coach that doesn't get the get players to outperform their true talent level and they just, you know, suck and don't make the playoffs or suck and don't, uh, you know, get a, get a lower seed. Um, the only other kind of question that I had system wise uh, for him is, you know, I do feel, so it's, it's, it is a, the type of system that I always wanted the Nets to play, particularly in the early uh, Brooke Lopez uh, days, uh, not early, like, you know, early Brooklyn days, basically, um, and was overjoyed sort of when they started playing it. I do wonder a little bit as the lead, you know, watching like Zion come in with the Pelicans, watching, um, you know, Giannis be so dominant in the way that the Bucks are huge with Lopez, um, looking at what Philly's doing, like, I do wonder if we're in the middle of a bit of a pendulum swing uh, back toward you know, needing to have big, like needing to have size on the floor, um, not necessarily at the expense of space, but um, just just having it to be able to kind of bang. And it hasn't really been, I guess this is kind of what you're saying, like it hasn't really been a problem in the regular season for, for the Nets. Uh, but as they, as they do get into the playoffs and things get more physical, you know, because they've been able to rebound, I think, at a pretty high clip this season. Um, I, I've sort of constantly gone into the numbers to be like, Oh, the Nets need a bigger four. Like what, what are they doing? And then been like, actually they're, they're rebounding. (laughs) They're one of the better rebounding teams in the league. Um, but you know, as those get more contested, uh, you know, I wonder if that lack of size and that strict adherence to really kind of playing everybody sort of up a position, it seems like, you know, like Joe Harris is a three on this team, but he's probably a two. Um, you know, Torian Prince is a four on this team, but he's probably a three. Uh, and I'm referring to how many spots from the coach he sits on the bench. Um, but, but like, I do, I do wonder that a little bit, um, is, you know, does that, does that become a problem next year and the year after that, et cetera? Yeah, and I, I think I'm just more thinking about it with the end goal in mind, right? Because the, I, I don't think that any of those things that I said were negative, but I think that the way you can adjust and coach in the playoffs is more important with this team, and Kenny was not proven to be able to do that. And the sample size was too small and not in his favor based on how he performed against Philadelphia last year. And I think the, the question marks around the most important 
parts of what a coach should do for this team, which were support players and be able to make shrewd adjustments and, and smart moves in the playoffs were, were unanswered for him. I think that's fair. Brett, doing a positive stat before we call it a night? Please, and then I have something fun to share as well. How about this one? Plus 5.56. Do you know what that is? That is Jared Allen on the floor and DeAndre Jordan on the bench. Nope, that would not be fun. (laughs) (laughs) In light of this recent shakeup. No, that is the Nets net rating when the floor is shared by Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert. Wow. On the season, uh, 567 minutes, which is, uh, so I I am on pbpstats.com. Um, and I am looking at a sample of 567 minutes, uh, which I have the filter on that only includes stats from games in which both players played. So I'm chucking the Levert injury time and not counting that, um, as time that Dinwiddie was on the floor and he was off. Um, but they are plus 5.56 with both of them on the floor. They are negative with one of either one of them on and the other off. Um, and then randomly they're plus actually they're, they have a higher net rating when they're both off, <laughs> it is but very surprising and very encouraging. But the, I think the plus 5.56 is huge. And, and you know, the way that Levert's been playing the past couple games, like in, in hitting and knocking down threes, like I think that's uh, encouraging that the fit could potentially work. Wow. Damn. Well, we should probably dig into why that's working. That would be, that'd be a fun pod to do in the future. Sounds great. Let's do that. I um, And one last thing to share that I thought was that, – that cheered up my night a little bit after the tumultuous last few days the Nets have had. I was watching Hornets-Hawks, which ended up being a – what was it? Double overtime throw? Triple overtime throw? That was a good game. Um, and I think it was two overtimes and a really long replay review. <laughs> which might as well have been a third overtime. Uh, they they got to do something about that replay review. In theory, it was a great idea, but it's taking way too long. Either – Something happened or it didn't. But the Hawks arena played a, uh, a game that showed really, really old things. And fans were supposed to answer if they happened before or after Vince Carter came into the league. It was a delight. One of the things was the Macarena. <laughs> it was so good to watch that. And I know Vince Carter. Which is before, right? Yeah, I, I, th- I thought for sure that was before. Because what was Car- Carter's rookie year? It was 98? So Macarena was 96. Vince Carter's rookie year was 98. Okay. Yeah, here you go. So the Macarena Man. is two years older than Vince Carter's NBA career. Incredible. Wow. And on that note, we are the number one Nets pod for Macarena related news. You can follow us on Twitter at Russell and Fro. You can uh, email us, uh, russellandfro at gmail.com. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Breaker, on SoundCloud, uh, wherever Pocket Casts, wherever you get your casts. On Donner, on Blitzen. We'll, we'll be there. You get the cast, you know, put on by the doctor. You scratch inside of it with a pencil. It smells bad when you take it off. Um, check us out. Brett, do you have anything for the people? Stay the course. Thousand points in life. They said you murdered me by the time I was 21. That shit disturbed me, but you never hurt me. Hello, Brooklyn. If we had a daughter, guess what? I'm a caller. Brooklyn Carter. When I left you for Virginia, it didn't offend you. Cause you know I only stepped out to get dinner. Hello, Brooklyn. How you doing? And that's our back.